Oh shit! I nearly spilled that on my laptop. That would have been really <laughs> bad. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and host, Mickens. Like Mickey, how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, you know, uh, I was happy. I, I saw you in person, uh, yesterday and that was, that was very, very pleasant. And I'm not going to lie you well, you made me uh, somewhat uncomfortable. <laughs> More so than usual. How's, how's that? Well, you know, I believe you are flouting, uh, social distancing rules. How, why, how could you accuse me of such a thing? Well, you rang my doorbell and then, which is fine, but typically when people ring, ring your doorbell in these days, they take like, you know, 10 steps back. And you were right there in my face. I mean, like, I could have kissed you. Um, <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess it's good that you did take advantage of that opportunity. Um, yeah, you know, uh, point taken. Uh, we actually went for a walk uh, a couple weeks ago, and your daughter pointed out that we were walking too close to each other, no? Yeah, absolutely. She, she actually ratted me out to, uh, to, to, uh, to my wife. That's right. Yeah. So basically, I'm a terrible person. You're a terrible person. We all suck. Uh, no, it's just you. It's just you. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, and actually, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. But, uh, it, you know, I, I'm not alone in feeling like, at least I don't think, because you're, you're clearly like more comfortable with like being close to people, um, where I'm just like, what, it's been three months now, you know, kind of in lockdown or really kind of isolating a lot. Um, and I'm just fucking tired of this. And my neighbors are tired of it. Like, we're all just like, ah, come on. And it reminds me of um, what uh, Stuart Ritchie, I think, laughed at, th th this concept of, uh, you know, lockdown fatigue. And I think we're, we're experiencing it now. We're experiencing like kind of like, well, we're, we're less maybe uh, sensitive or less uh, rigorous with our application of the rules. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about that as well, the way people scoffed at the idea of lockdown fatigue. And it's like, why, why would you expect that that wouldn't happen? Right. So, uh, Keith, have you been better than we are at maintaining social distancing? Uh, I think I've been doing fairly well. Um, I, uh, my big problem is that when I go out for walks, um, early on, I started to get really, really angry um, because there's no such thing as like walking in the middle of the sidewalk anymore. Um, if somebody's walking towards you or in the middle of the sidewalk, that's incredibly inconsiderate. And uh, I started to get like sidewalk range rage, um, sort of like road rage. Um, so there's like these new rules and new norms that come up with social distancing. And now I'm watching, assuming that everybody knows them. And when you see people violate those norms, what we're walking around, it's infuriating. So uh, yeah, so I've been doing a fairly good job of trying to avoid people as much as possible um, and hopefully having them reciprocate. But what I find is people, they often don't. I end up in this, you know, these situations where we're playing sidewalk chicken where I decide I'm not going to yield because this other person is inconsiderate and they're not going to yield. And then ultimately, as we get closer and closer, I start to think, wait a minute, this is literally, <laughs> this is life or death. <laughs> I'm not doing this. So then I, I give up and I'm angry about giving up. And the other person is, you know, usually young and, you know, I have my stereotypes about people who are younger and not really caring and thinking that they're immune to the virus. And so it's pretty frustrating. So um, I've, I've been doing okay with it, but uh, that is one little problem. 
You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, um, the, the sidewalk norms, um, because I, for all that Mickey makes me out to be somebody who's like wantonly spreading COVID, I do, I do think I really differentiate between my friends who I probably incorrectly treat as like zero risk and everybody else where I really, I'm careful to give people like a lot of room and not so much to be polite, but because I don't know where they've been. Right. So yeah. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, um, it's self-protective. Exactly, exactly. And if it's the sort of person who's going to come close to you, they're going to come close to lots of other people. You know, it's just a bad scene. Um, so I, I should introduce uh, our guest. Uh, we're uh, thrilled to, today to have back on the show for the second time uh, Keith Maddox, who longtime listeners may remember from episode 34, uh, The Future of Social Psychology, where he joined us uh, for a, a briefer segment. Uh, Keith is uh, an associate professor of psychology. He's the director of the Tufts University Social Cognition Lab. His PhD is in social psych uh, from UC Santa Barbara, actually my hometown. Um, his work uh, is on the social cognitive aspects of stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination. So Keith, we're very excited to have you uh, back and welcome back to the show. Yeah, hey, thank you very much. It's good to be back. Yeah, so 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 happy to, to, to have you here. Um, and uh, also very timely. Uh, what, what, what date is it, Yoel? Oh, yeah, we should say the date. It's <laughs> June 5th. June 5th. I know it's June. That's about it's, it. It's hard to know anymore, really. So before we get to the uh, many current events that we want to talk about, um, I'm going to put my foot down and insist that we talk about what we're drinking. Uh, Mickey, you want to go first? Yes, yes, sure. And thank you. You're you're like you're being really rigorous with the uh, our format I've, here. I've internalized that because I used to be bad and now I, I'm trying to be better. I, I appreciate it. Um, so I've got something from uh, Railway City Brewing Company. Uh, it's called Juice Caboose. That's a juicy IPA. Uh, it's got like kind of like a psychedelic 60s, you know, uh, summer of love uh, kind of motif on the, on the can. 6.8% alcohol by volume. It's uh, yeah, pretty hoppy and uh, juicy. So uh, at first I thought it was Juicy Caboose, which I, which I thought was a bit nicer. <laughs> <but> <laughs> it's got all kinds of connotations, but uh, I, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. Um, so I'll, I'll go next. Um, I'm drinking... The last of uh, this listener contributed beer from a few weeks ago. Mickey, do you remember the name of the listener who brought this? Uh, the, the dude who oh stopped boy. at your house? The optometrist? I, I, I forget now. I, oh, we're I, we're I, very I sorry, sir. We're terrible people. Uh, but I've really been enjoying this beer. So uh, so thanks again for, um, for that very kind donation. Uh, so this is Barnstormer is the name of the brewery. And this is uh, a first class lager, which is just a like nice light summer lager. Very kind of crisp and refreshing. Uh, Keith, what about you? So uh, I'm drinking uh, an IPA and it's a New England style IPA and it's from a brewery, it's called Thunderboom and it's from a brewery called White Lion. And uh, this is actually a black owned brewery that's uh, one of uh, only a couple that I was able to find in Massachusetts. And uh, it's in Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, I actually just um, picked it up. Uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but um, as you know, current events has sort of made me start thinking a little bit more about trying to figure out different ways to, to contribute and to support the black community in, in ways that I don't already do. And this is one of them. So um, tried to find a brewery and now it's something I'm gonna continue to do, try to you know make sure that I'm a little bit more thoughtful about the kinds of uh, beers and other types of um, you know restaurants um, where we we patronize basically nice and we will have a link to that in the show notes for uh the listeners who want to check that out what is the name of the brewery again 
It's White Lion. Yeah, cheers. 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 So we have a lot of stuff that we want to talk to you about, but one thing that we've found that our listeners really enjoy is just hearing from different people how they got to where they are, um, and particularly uh, younger academics. Uh, they they really like to hear you know how that happened for people. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your academic path, and in particular, when was it that you decided to pursue social psychology as a career? Was that something you always knew that you wanted to do? Was it something that was sparked by a particular working with a particular person, taking a particular class? Like, what was it that pushed you in that direction? Yeah, it's uh, so I'll try not to make it too long a story, but it's uh, essentially um, it was something in college where I uh, I remember just um, you know taking courses, not quite sure what I wanted to major in. I think I was. Uh, I was sort of an astronomy major for a little while. I was pre-med for a little while, um, having a little difficulty finding myself. And then I remember taking social psychology and really enjoying it. Um, particularly, it kind of gave me a scaffolding for a lot of the kinds of things that I thought about in terms of my own relationships with other people and kind of, you know, just the the idea of watching other people, trying to understand their behavior, um, trying to predict what they're going to be doing. And social psych was one of the only courses that really gave me a great sort of, um, again, a framework for starting to think about some of that stuff. And then, you know, also just the methodology was something that I really, really enjoyed as well. So around that time, I started taking other courses and I took a course that was um, by James Hilton um, at Michigan. I was at the University of Michigan and it was called Attitudes and Behavior. And on the first day of class, he said, um, this is an attitudes and behavior class, but um, actually it's a class that's on something uh, called social cognition. And so he started to talk a little bit about what social cognition was. Uh, the textbook was called Social Cognition. It was um, by Fisk and Taylor. And this is, you know, 1985, I think, something like that. So I think it's the first edition of that book. And um, I took that course and I really enjoyed it. And simultaneously, I was taking a cognitive psychology course. And that cognitive psychology course was taught by uh, a guy named John Janitis. And uh, the cognitive psych course was more introductory. The attitudes and behavior of the social cognition course was a little bit more like a seminar. But um, I uh, had a revelation that um, cognitive psychology and social psychology and the, the, the topics that we were talking about in our social cognition course were really, really related. And I had this um, obviously false sense that I um, generated, I created, I, I discovered the relationship between social psychology and cognitive psychology. And so forget about the fact that the book was called Social Cognition. Forget about the fact that the instructor told me that the name of the class was really going to be about social cognition. I had that sense of discovery that I figured out the relationship between cognitive and social psychology. And while it was false, and I did figure that out pretty quickly, um, still it was still pretty magical for me. So that really just essentially made me um, think a little more about what I wanted to do with psychology. Um, I got interested in the idea of doing research or basically just learning more about social psychology. And by the time I graduated, that's all they had to teach me. So basically I decided to go to graduate school. And when I went to grad school, I really was pretty naive. I wasn't sure what I was doing and why I was doing it other than just going and getting um, more of an education. And it took me a little while to sort of pick up on what grad school was about and what the field was about. And again, once I did pick up on things, I really, um, I, I took to it. So 
Um, I did. I had a very, very slow start as a graduate student, slow start as an assistant professor. And, you know, uh, to truth be told, I'm not, you know, the most productive social psychologist there is out there, but I really do enjoy the work. I enjoy reading about the work. I enjoy communicating the work. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a match made in heaven for me. Um, but I, I got to tell you, I, I got here by accident and I'm really fortunate that I enjoy it. That seems to be almost everybody's story, actually, as uh, I, I know maybe one person who is planning on this as a career. Uh, so what, uh, drew you to UCSB in particular? <laughs> uh, well, okay. There were two things. So obviously, maybe not obviously, I guess I'll say, but you know, the weather, the environment, um, it's a, it's an incredible place. It's a beautiful place. Um, a great setting, um, that is distracting at first, but after a while you get used to it and then you're able to sort of settle down and get work done. But, um, that was one thing. So coming from Michigan, living in California, um, and having that opportunity was something that was really exciting to me. But I have to say that I, I did visit at several other schools. And when I visited UCSB, I just had the best environment um, or the best experience there during that visit. And I think I had decided pretty early on that uh, that, you know, I, I would obviously consider the quality of the school, you know, to the extent to which I had a good understanding of what the quality of a graduate program would have been at that time. But I also knew that I had to be happy in the place. I had to be someplace where I was going to, um, you know, feel safe, feel comfortable, um, where I was going to enjoy myself. And that was, uh, going to be really important. So, you know, in a sense, I had a, I got a, a guess a kind of a sense that, you know, thinking about self-care and the kinds of things that were going to be making me happy in the environment that I was in was going to be important first. And then sort of what I do in the graduate program would be somewhat secondary, but also, you know, buoyed by the fact that I'd find myself in an environment that I was, that I was happy in. So that's pretty much why I picked Santa Barbara. It was a great group of people, um, really warm and supportive. Um, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, when I was deciding where to go, I had a very similar experience where I, I ultimately ended up going to Cornell and it just felt like it was just this great community, you know, and it had other drawbacks. It's in upstate New York. It's far from everything. The weather up there is terrible. So I, you know, you came from Michigan and you went to Santa Barbara and I came from Santa Barbara and moved <laughs> yeah. to Ithaca, you know, so right. that, was, that was rough. And I, I was thinking about other places and in particular, I guess I'll not be a dick and and not say what place it was, but it was like a well-known prestigious program that I visited. And it just seemed like the grad students there were miserable. You know, they yeah. all seemed really just depressed and stressed. And I don't know if I put it to myself as thoughtfully as you've just described it, but I just felt like it had a bad vibe, you know, yeah. and I, I didn't want to go there. And I've actually never regretted that choice because I think that intuition was right just from what I've heard since. All right. Enough bad-mouthing Princeton. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, that's, I, I love the backstory as well, but I want to know a little bit more and I'm sure our listeners, we they got a, a taste, uh, the last time you were on, but just a taste. Um, and so you study, uh, stereotyping and prejudice, um, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, I would say the major topic in social psychology, or at least like among the top five, like a really, really big topic. Um, and, you know, given current events, it seems incredibly relevant today more than ever. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, you know, what you study. Yeah. So um, as sort of uh, you all mentioned, it's uh, I think of it as the sort of the, the cognitive aspects of social psychology. So 
um, social cognitive sort of perspectives on stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination. And um, when I say that, I essentially sort of think about it as the the idea that people have mental representations of um, other people. Um, that includes information about their appearance, includes information about the groups that they belong to, you know, maybe information about their past behavior. And we integrate all that information to to try to make um, judgments about people, make predictions about people in order to guide our behavior and our actions toward them. So, um, yeah, when you're thinking about stereotyping and prejudice, you're thinking about the extent to which we have beliefs about people based on groups that they belong to, um, our pre-existing associations of those groups, and the extent to which we're willing to um, generalize or use those um, those generalizations to make judgments about any particular individual person. And again, in a lot of different kinds of contexts, interpersonal contexts, or even just the kinds of judgments that we might make about people from a distance. Um, and when I, uh, the work that I do has really, I kind of cut my teeth on a topic um, that's kind of talked about as um, phenotypicality bias or skin tone bias. And that is um, how we might make judgments about people based on racial groups. Um, but not strictly based on their group membership. It's also about their physical appearance and the extent to which their physical appearance is more or less typical of our expectations for that group. So if you think about African-Americans, for example, African-Americans have features or facial features that vary um, with respect to their skin tone, um, their nose width, their hair texture, their lip fullness, et cetera. And um, those characteristics that we tend to think of as being more typical, like darker skin tone, fuller lips, broader noses, um, leads to greater stereotyping compared to individuals who have those characteristics that we think of as being less typical, like lighter skin tone, narrow noses, and uh, thinner lips. And so it's really this idea that people do use racial categories to make judgments about others, but we're also sensitive to variation within those racial categories. And that sensitivity translates into the extent to which we're going to be um, applying stereotypes to those individuals. It, it um, extends to the extent to which we might exhibit prejudice towards those image individuals, and it, um, it has implications for the behavior that we exhibit toward them as well. So has anybody looked at this in uh, other minority groups, so not African-Americans, but uh, other non-white people? Because um, the, the reason, part of the reason this research really resonates with me is uh, my students at UTSC, it's, I would say it's about 20% white. And they're, you know, a mix of uh, their, uh, the non-whites are like South Asian, North African, Middle Eastern, you know, a mix from all over. Um, and they brought up in a, in a seminar class is uh, the, the term they used is shadism. Um, and it, it was something that like regardless kind of of their background or their, you know, specific uh, race or ethnicity that it seemed that they could relate to that lighter skin was better. Right. And that yeah. within those communities that people were very explicit about it, you know, like uh, we want you to marry, you know, a lighter skinned woman like to that level. So yeah. I, I find this to be just fascinating because it's this like extremely pervasive, I, I would say, internalized racism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I mean, essentially, um, you know, that also getting it to the other groups. So um, uh, South Asians, for example, um, there's uh, shadism there or colorism as another term that's used. Uh, and you may We've, a lot of us are sort of familiar with um, sort of examples of, um, you know, personal ads, let's say, um, in India, where personal ads are very explicit about um, an individual's skin tone and um, others' desire for people who are lighter skin tone. So it's a pretty explicit sort of a process there, and it's not kind of hidden. 
um, amongst Latin American communities, I'm thinking Mexico in particular, but also other Latin American countries, there's also some um, colorism that's existing there that people who are lighter skinned. Um, I remember this was a, you know, kind of a silly bias that I had, but um, I'm not sure if anybody had ever spent a lot of time watching Spanish language television in the United States. And you see sort of patterns there that would make you think that the, you know, the people who are on soap operas, the people who are in newscasts, things like that, they're all what you think of as being more Euro appearing um, Latin Americans. And uh, you don't see as much, right, in terms of being visible, individuals who are a little bit more indigenous, right, who have darker skin tone and more indigenous features. So that kind of bias there is maybe not as um, sort of explicit as it is in India, but it's definitely evident and it's there. Um, Brazil is another example that people talk a lot about that Brazilians, um, actually they, and this is, I, this may be a little dated, I'm not quite sure, but, um, when I was thinking and thinking a little bit about Brazil, the, the takeaway from Brazil was that they don't, they don't have racial categories. They don't think about race. Um, but if you look at their, their, um, society and you look at stratification in their society with respect to different kinds of educational and um, economic outcomes, you see a great correlation with somebody's skin tone, right? That physical appearance, their skin tone, people who are darker or worse off, people who are lighter or well off. And there they sort of deny the idea of race, but there's this still residual impact of color, which again is correlated with race, but that's the thing that drives their um, judgments of one another and the outcomes that people have. So yeah, lots of different communities, um, almost any community, at least that I've heard of, where you do see any variation in terms of skin tone and variation in terms of physical appearance. Within those communities, um, in general, what's lighter is generally thought of as being more favorable. And those individuals are also thought, or sorry, more, more likely to experience positive outcomes in those societies. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, at least in some cultures, it's a very explicit preference. And I want to kind of put a pin in that because I, I want to come back later to the idea of like, what does social psychology focus on in terms of like the sorts of prejudices that, that they study? And is it maybe the case that we've been focused too much on implicit and not enough on um, explicit prejudice? Uh, but before we go there, um, I remember the last time you were on uh, you mentioned kind of a different uh, line of research where you were looking at um, anxiety from majority group members as they're trying to talk about prejudice. And this struck me as, you know, somebody who in my social media feeds, I have a ton of like well-meaning liberal white people, right? And I, I'm sensing their extreme anxiety as they're trying to figure out what to like do with this moment, you know? Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that line of research. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a few years ago, so I, I'll, I'll start a little bit further back. So when I got into social psychology, ultimately, again, there was there was a desire and need and a want to understand a little bit more about how people work and how people think in the context of stereotyping and prejudice. And the goal was to be able to understand that to the point where I could actually do something about it, that I could suggest, you know, different kinds of interventions that might help to ameliorate the expression of bias, um, the expression of stereotyping, prejudice, et cetera, um, or ameliorate the impact of it. And so I remember that as being sort of what my goal was going into graduate school, but then, um, what I discovered and, um, what, uh, what happened is that, 
I realized that, you know, the scientific sort of endeavor of social psychology led me to and led um, us to spend a lot more time thinking about the theoretical development, which is important, but really no attention to sort of the application, no attention to the practical implications of some of these kinds of theories. And so we were reinforced to really just sort of study the, and develop theory and do experiments and, um, and frankly, not talk to the press, you know, because you're always having that sort of that scientific um, you know, um, a sort of a healthy skepticism or doubt with respect to the research evidence that you have and not wanting to overstep and make claims beyond whatever evidence that you had. So talking to the press and making broad generalizations or conclusions was really frowned upon. But again, I always wanted to do something with it and do something that's a little bit more applied. So a little bit later in my career, I kind of shifted focus from doing um, just research looking at phenotypicality bias because I had um, my own interest, but also a grad student, Jenny Schultz, who um, was also, she was actually an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara and she worked with Brenda Major. And when she came into my lab, she got me really interested in um, confrontation at first, right? So it was this idea of when you have um, somehow, when you've experienced some expression um, that can be interpreted as being biased, the extent to which people are willing to step up and say something about it and confront it. And some of the early work we did with, um, that I did with Jenny showed that, you know, if you're um, an African-American individual who's confronting bias versus being a white person to confront bias, we were able to replicate this pattern that that African-American experienced more backlash when they confronted, that their confrontations were seen as self-interested and self-interest motivated. And oftentimes the confrontation was discounted, that people didn't pay attention to it. But we were interested in trying to understand how do you you know, maybe insulate African-Americans from that backlash? How can you make confrontation more effective? And in this case, it was this idea of using um, our understanding of the literature and persuasion, right? Thinking about a confrontation as an opportunity for a persuasive communication. So um, if you're thinking about it, you want to think about characteristics of the messenger, you want to think about characteristics of the message, and you want to think about characteristics of the audience. And for us, the idea was that a confrontation that um, that somebody might have or might, somebody might um, exhibit that, let's say, um, was perceived of as being sort of weaker quality, that those kinds of confrontations might be more likely to be susceptible to backlash. And so we were able to sort of use that sort of persuasion framework to create a manipulation where we were able to manipulate the strength of the arguments that an African-American person was making in a confrontation effort compared to um, a white person. And we found that, you know, essentially we were able to show that the backlash was ameliorated whenever the strong arguments were used compared to when the weak arguments were used. So strong arguments, black and white confronters were perceived of as being pretty similar, that they didn't exhibit or show any differential backlash based on race. But when that argument was weaker, that's where you started to see the backlash. So that was uh, kind of an initial foray into trying to understand sort of, you know, we can use this sort of theoretical sort of model in terms of theory development and try to understand different ways of intervening to help to come to more favorable, at least in this case, favorable outcomes with respect to confronting bias. Um, the work you're talking about was other work that Jenny did, and this is her dissertation work, where we started to think about, you know, people, um, and the people's desire to have conversations with other people based on, um, you know, talking about race, um, but having conversations not just with people of your own race, but with people of other races. And the idea there was that those conversations, those dialogues are really important because um, if you have two sides of an issue, let's say people who are black versus people who are white who see an issue very differently, 
conversation is going to be important because you're going to need those two people to um, exchange ideas, talk about their perspectives, come to some common understanding, and then hopefully, once they have a common understanding about the nature of the problem, then they can suggest solutions to that problem that are going to be sustainable, um, that are going to be, again, the solutions that people are going to agree on, that they're going to be able to implement and implement with agreement so that they're more likely to be endorsed over time. And what we were surmising is that those conversations didn't happen. And it's because a lot of work that had been done by, um, you know, Jennifer Richardson, um, Nicole Shelton, sort of looking at the nature of interracial interactions and demonstrating that people in these interracial contexts are really feeling anxious. You know, they're anxious. Um, white people are anxious in interracial contexts, um, in part because they're worried about what black people might be thinking of them. Are they going to be seen as being biased or seen as being racist? Uh, black people are anxious in interracial contexts um, to the extent to which they might be um, concerned about being seen through the lens of negative stereotypes. And so everybody's sort of coming to this conversation with some anxiety and exhibiting some anxiety in those conversations that makes them not go as favorably as you would like. And so um, with Jenny Schultz and my colleague um, Heather Uri, uh, we started to think about this idea that, so Heather is an affective neuroscientist at Tufts and does work on emotion regulation. And the idea is that, look, you have people who are coming together for a conversation, and if they're anxious about it, that might actually lead them to avoid those conversations. So we started thinking about this from an emotion regulation framework, and that the idea there is that, let's say, people may use their anticipated emotional responses to certain situations to decide to avoid those situations. So it's a concept called situation selection, and that people who anticipate anxiety might select themselves away from a situation that's going to present them with anxiety. So it was actually kind of a, a really simple study. The idea was to see if we could understand whether anxiety might be motivating people's decisions to have a conversation with a person who was of a different racial group with them, of them. And if they, um, if we could address that anxiety in some way, they might be more likely to approach those conversations. So I'm getting to the good part. Ultimately, what happened is that we, um, we manipulated amongst uh, white individuals um, instead of just putting them in forced interactions and having them interact with other people and demonstrating levels of anxiety, we gave them a choice of whether or not they wanted to approach an interaction with a black person or a white person. So we had white participants have a choice between a black versus a white person. And what we did is we gave them an intervention that was targeting this idea of emotion regulation, of targeting their anxiety. And what we found is that that, um, that intervention was successful in getting people to approach conversations with black people when they would have otherwise avoided them. So compared to a control condition where they had no instructions, they were much more likely to say that they wanted to speak to a white person about race relations um, after we have given them this intervention. So that work is sort of, um, that was Jenny's dissertation work, and it's actually still kind of preliminary. We're, we're trying to figure out whether or not we really did get an anxiety. We didn't have a lot of great measures there. Um, that or great evidence in that case that we were targeting people's anxiety. But what we did show is that when we were able to get people to approach those conversations, um, then when we did look at their, their performance in those conversations, their behavior, they tended to show much lower levels of sort of nonverbal cues of anxiety. So they looked more comfortable after they had been chosen choosing a white, uh, sorry, a black participant compared to choosing um, a white 
um, participant as an interaction partner. So we're really interested and excited about this idea that, you know, trying to address people's anxiety that might lead them to select into particular situations, anxiety that might carry through those situations and lead to negative outcomes. Addressing that anxiety might be really important in terms of getting people to approach difficult conversations. And we're not trying to eliminate their anxiety um, completely. We're not trying to make those conversations less difficult. But what we want to do is get people to step to the table and deal with the discomfort that they're going to be experiencing. So we're thinking like interventions like that could be really successful in terms of getting, as you sort of described, people who are well-meaning um, and liberal but anxious that might help them to make a decision to do something that they wouldn't otherwise and hopefully to lead to more positive intergroup outcomes. You can see these parallels between um, COVID uh, and and the current, I'll, I'll just call it the racism crisis, not that it, the racism is new, but that people's attention to it is in that like people are like all of a sudden like, wow, there's this huge pressing issue, you know, like, and it's something that is really important socially and that I really want to do something about in in if you're, you know, a social scientist, you're like, well, I should use my research in order to give people recommendations to do better, right, to help them. Um, and around COVID, I, I don't know how much you followed this. There was sort of a back and forth between some people who, like, um, wrote this very high profile paper that was like recommendations for policymakers um, and another group that said, whoa, 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 we're, we're not ready, right? Yeah. Our research just like can't do that yet. Um, and I'm curious what your take on that is with our um, research around uh, prejudice and stereotyping and discrimination. Are we at the point where we can confidently make recommendations, do this to make it better? I So I will admit that um, so that's a paper that I have not yet read, but it is literally on the agenda for our journal club next week at, uh, at Tufts. So, you know, the social area, actually, it's a uh, um, um, affective developmental and social group, we're going to be reading um, that exchange or those two papers and having a conversation about them. So I haven't read them yet, but the general idea about, you know, whether or not social psychology is ready, um, I think, you know, and if I am right about this, right, the idea is that if there's, um, if there are more recent, newer results, newer findings, and we're making recommendations based on those things, then those things are probably a bit more suspect compared to findings that are maybe a little bit more or a little older, a little bit more established. And so with the caveat that, you know, even those older and established things may not necessarily have been um, explored and discovered with the same standard that we might be applying to new research today, um, there's probably a lot of suggestion that there are things like, you know, processes having to do with conformity, processes having to do with, um, you know, attitude change, et cetera. Like there are some things that we do know fairly well and that I probably feel more confident about compared to things that are maybe a little bit newer, a little bit more recent. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of maybe I'm balancing a line here. So I think that, yeah. There may be the case that there's some things that aren't sort of ready for prime time, but there are probably a lot of other things that are. So I want to I want to push you a little bit on this because I, I I've, I've been thinking about this um, a little bit, and and as I kind of I stated at the at the, the top of the show, you know, prejudice, intergroup relations, discrimination, it's like one of the major major topics in social psychology. Um, we've been studying this for like half a century, um, and you would think that we would have ready answers uh, that, or maybe even, even before that, that we would have 
us as a field, we would have been instrumental in perhaps leading to change, uh, leading to positive change in our, in our societies. And I think for a long time, uh, many of us thought that no, society is getting better along this dimension of, of racial progress. Um, but every once in a while, now is a current moment, you're like, well, how much have things actually changed? Um, how much have things improved? Um, and, you know, uh, Michael Krauss and Jennifer Richardson wrote a paper a year or two ago suggesting that actually, you know, racial progress is maybe a myth, um, at least in certain dimensions. And they, they keyed in on, uh, you know, uh, relative wealth between African-Americans and white Americans um, and, and saying that's been stagnant for about 30 to 50 years. Um, so, I mean, this big, long preamble is to say we've been studying this thing a lot. You think we would have moved the dial, but... I'm not sure. I'm not sure the dial has been moved. Um, so what, what do you think? Oh, that's tough. I Well, I, I, I will tell you that, yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking a little bit on the fly. I haven't given this a lot of thought previously, but the idea is that, um, you know, there's a myth of racial progress, that the kinds of progress that we've that we've looked at and we've suggested are, is, is progress really isn't. And this um, kind of brings me dangerously to, you know, my reaction to, let's say, the 2016 election, for example. So the 2016 election, I was absolutely, you know, certain that Hillary Clinton was going to win in the United States. I should focus on that, right? The U.S. election. And I was absolutely certain that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And then when she didn't and Donald Trump ran, ran, or won, it, um, it really made me question everything that I do, right? So it made me think, look, there's something that's going on that I, I not, I wasn't, it's hard to say I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised. <laughs> it's like, once it happened, I was like, well, of course it happened. None of this stuff went away. It was always there. It was under the surface. I think I had underestimated the, the extent to which it was there to the point where it captured such a broad proportion of the population. But I also think we have, I, I don't want to say it was a myth. We have made some progress, right? You, um, people's decisions and judgments are not expl as explicitly made by race, not in a lot of people. A lot of times people are racially biased in the extent to which they have other kinds of needs, other kinds of, um, you know, interests, other kinds of pursuits that um, those decisions that benefit them when race is put against them, they're going to choose self-interest. They're going to choose those things and that they tend to, think about race um, as not being that important. And that would look like, at least to us, when we look at their behavior, it looks like a racist. And that's a different kind of racist, at least in my mind, to what I would imagine is a racist from a number of years ago. And it's not to say that, um, for example, that you know racism um, and you know the version of racism that led to slavery, for example, obviously there are some economic sorts of motivations for that as well. But in this case, the I think that the the way in which people think about race now is different than the way they would have thought about race then. And that the attitudes that people do express, and when they mention their explicit attitudes, they do express being less explicitly racist. And I think that is movement in some way. But I was talking to another colleague um, who told me about this fantastic book, but I don't remember the name of the book. I'll try to find it for after the podcast. But I was speaking with Alison Ledgerwood, um, another social psychologist. And, you know, one of the ways of characterizing the sort of racial bias um, versus anti-racism is this idea that they are 
they exist together that you know as one progresses the other one recedes but there's you're never going to get rid of either one that in a sense they're always pushing against one another so the idea of of the the return to more um more racist sorts of expressions is something that might not be thought of as a regression in time but just a a, not a process the idea is that you're going to have um you know let's say a virus or some kind of a disease that's gonna that's gonna bounce back it's gonna show some particular expression at some point and that we're gonna have to because it's changing it's it's evolving based on the new ecosystem right it's based on it's reacting to whatever kind of intervention was was used to suppress it in the past and it can evolve and get beyond those kinds of things and express it and rear its ugly head in another way and that anti-racism efforts also have to be um, evolving. They have to evolve in order to counteract the new expression of racism. So it's um, it's a little complicated, and I hope I didn't like completely confuse everybody. But I think it's this idea that these two things, like when racism comes back, it's not it's not that we're going back in time. It's like when we when we have an expression of a virus um, that comes back and starts to get us again. It's not that we think that we've gone back in time. It's just that that thing has changed. It's evolved to, to express itself in a new environment. And we have to evolve as well in order to push it back. In a way, this is uh, really similar to the argument made by this book, Identity Crisis, that we talked about in a past episode where this is a book by uh, some political scientists where they argue essentially that Obama's election catalyzed racial awareness among a certain group of white voters, that they they started to think of themselves like as a racial interest group, right? And that ties in both with like, okay, this is a result of like what most people would consider to be racial progress, right? First black president. And also that part of it really is like in-groupishness, right? Like you you feel like you're sticking up for your people. Part of that is also then definitely like some degree of racial animus or like dislike of outgroups. But where they at least argue it comes from is this awareness of, you know, you and people like you as an identity group and then a need to defend that identity identity group against perceived threats. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people would say that that's, you know, kind of reflects human nature, right? The idea of, you know, creating a group, a group that, that provides um, and protects in lots of different ways and defending that group in ways that, um, again, you're just protecting your own group. And it's not, it's, uh, it's not that it's indefensible necessarily, because we also, apart from sort of what might be sort of natural motives that we have towards protecting in groups, we also have, you know, you know, higher level functioning and thinking and ideals about how people should be treated and that we should be able to, at least I think we think most people should be able to counteract any baser sorts of impulses in order to help us to achieve those higher order ideal ideals. I, I think we're really getting to an interesting place here, but I, I also- Need more beer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one more beer. I think I see Keith, you're empty as well. Yeah. Um, so perhaps we take a bit of a break. Let's take a few minutes and, and get a refill, and uh, we'll see you back here in a sec.
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter at Four Beers Pod is the show's handle. You can at mention us. You can DM us. If you'd like to email us, please uh, use our show email address, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com, where you can find all of our episodes. You can drop us a note there as well if you would like. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please take a sec to just rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice it just helps other people discover the show if you guys do that mickey have i left anything out i think you're good just keep them coming keep the reviews and uh we, we always really truly enjoy the uh the emails we get really long detailed emails from from listeners uh sometimes we don't have uh uh the time to to respond in kind but we we really really do appreciate like uh how smart some of you guys are just really really uh thoughtful emails so keep them coming some of you some of you, Some of you. <laughs> not everyone. <laughs> anyway, uh, what are we drinking? Uh, Keith, do you want to go first this time? Yeah, sure. I will. Uh, so I'm going to continue with the White Lion Brewing Company, and uh, it's called Lions Galaxy. And this time, I've I've mixed it up quite a bit. Um, before I had a New England IPA, and now this is just a, a straight IPA, an India IPA, um, brewed with uh, Galaxy hops. And um, I I do like beer, but I am not. Don't get me wrong. I am not a connoisseur. I am not um, as informed as many of my friends and, and as um, as Mickey, as um, listening to the show, has kind of informed me as well. So I know that Galaxy Hops are hops. I know that hops provide a bit of bitterness, but I could not tell you how a Galaxy Hop differs from any other type of hop. But I am enjoying the beer. It's, uh, it's uh, an IPA that's around 7%, so that's uh, a little bit more, a little bit stronger than the last one I had. So I'm going to be finishing strong. No, Keith, it's a, it's a badly kept secret that we actually don't know anything about beer either. So yeah. you fit in very well. <laughs> I was, I knew for you, but I was giving Mickey the benefit of the doubt. But uh, yeah, at least he talked, he talks a good game. Right. So uh, for about a year, I think a year we had, we had the, we, we were like, had the full charade, like, you know, I would, I was really good at reading labels. And then a couple <laughs> of times I, I made some comments and we had some beer aficionados angrily email us. Oh, wow. And I not only, like, I had to apologize and there a couple of times about my mangling of um, beer concept. So now I don't pretend anymore and I'm drinking a juice caboose. It's a juicy IPA. I don't know what that means. Uh, it's tasty and I like it. Nice. Uh, and I found a Stella in the fridge. It's the last of that batch of Stellas that was sort of bottomless, but now I think they're all gone. So I'm going to, it's, you know, it's a way to stay with the like light kind of refreshing, low alcohol content. Cause I'm not as hardcore as you guys. I'm not going to finish off with like a 7% or anything like that. Well, I don't do the, I don't do this show every month. So yeah, I, I am going all out right now. No, this shit is bad for my liver. It's, <laughs> a, it's an occupational hazard. So I'm not convinced you, well, that is in fact the last Stella you have in the fridge. I guarantee, I bet listeners, and please like keep, keep, keep us honest here. I bet you in a month, you will, you will say, oh, I, I found another Stella in my fridge. Maybe. Uh, you'll, you can hold me accountable for that. <laughs> we'll put a stake in the ground here. Okay. Uh, Mickey, did you want to take the next question? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it was a shame to kind of uh, interrupt the flow, uh, the break, but uh, nature called and beer called. Um, and uh, hopefully we can get right back into it. Um, so I wanted to talk about something and, and I, you know, uh, it might make Yoel and I a bit uncomfortable, but, you know, that's cool. Um, it's a, uh, uh, I had this thought, you know, as we were kind of communicating with you and inviting you on the show. Um, and uh, I've seen kind of mentions of this on Twitter 
from 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 black academics. And then I, there's this uh, New York Times, uh, uh, I guess it's an op-ed or a, a column. Um, it's called, um, the title is, I don't need love texts from my white friends. I need them to fight anti-blackness. And the, 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 the column was essentially saying, this is a, a black author saying that, you know, in light of the, the current situation, um, he's a lot of his white friends um, emailing him, concerned, upset, and many of his well-intentioned white friends are kind of texting him in a way to for validation uh, about their own feelings of, of of rage and upsetness and almost looking for i'm not sure what to, to, to for for their black for the black friend to appease them in some way to make them feel better to make them feel as if they're doing something i think um and the author was like Listen, man, I, 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 you know, I've got lots of issues. This is not new to me. Maybe it's new to you. Um, and these texts are kind of annoying, and and they they're putting more of a burden on me. I don't want to take more of your burden. Um, so I wonder if, uh, if 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 those thoughts resonate with you at all. Well, you know, it's it's funny. So uh, I had heard of that um, article only through reference. Uh, there was a reference of a colleague of ours, uh, Michael Sargent, on Facebook. And he shared that article, but I didn't actually get the chance to read it. But I know a little bit about Michael, and I read a bit of his sort of preamble to um, to his post. And, you know, again, I think that it resonates with a lot of people. Um, there are – there, and this is a, a huge sort of conversation about, you know, what allyship looks like. And I have a grad student um, who's finishing – actually, she's going to be defending at the end of the month. Her name is Chelsea Criddle. And Chelsea has been really interested in confrontation, but then also just confrontation from the perspective of allyship that's respectful, allyship that's informed, um, allyship that is authentic, that looks to um, kind of just guide the actions of people who are not people of color um, or even people of color who are just not black, for example, if you're thinking about supporting African-Americans or blacks and trying to do the kinds of things that are going to actually be supportive and are going to actually move the movement forward as opposed to the kinds of things that are just performative. So she's um, done a lot of work sort of looking at some of the different characteristics and um, and issues that may come up when it comes to this idea of performative allyship in terms of trying to figure out and understand what's really authentic, what's useful. And so um, the work that she's doing right now sort of looks at the, the idea of confrontation in the classroom and how do you confront somebody in a classroom in a way that's going to um, sort of stop the behavior from a majority group person, make that majority group person sort of recognize the, the actions that they have, but then also respect and protect the underrepresented students, the black students in this context in that classroom. So some work trying to explore that and understand that. So I guess just the general idea of like, you know, trying to figure out how to be a good ally is tough. It's difficult. And the kinds of insights that you may have as a person um, in terms of how you would be an ally may not necessarily be authentic to people who are African-American or people who are from that underrepresented group. This one in particular, I um, so uh, Michael Sargent, I think his his phrase was uh, uh, this ain't my first rodeo. Um, you know, he's experienced this. He's OK. And uh, I think he was, you know, he was a little bit more consistent with sort of the viewpoint of the author. Um, I was a little bit different. And, you know, we have different experiences. Everybody has different experiences. But I think, you know, importantly, um, if any of those sort of suggestions to reach out to your black friends to see if they're OK, 
it's such overgeneralization, right? There are going to be some people who are not okay. There are going to be some people who are okay. It's going to be hard for you to know. So to use that as sort of blanket advice in terms of how you go about doing this is problematic because you have to tailor it to the person that you are thinking about supporting, the person you're reaching out to. The part that I will definitely agree with that I think is a kind of a blanket statement is that if you think reaching out and checking in on your Black friends is all you need to do, then that's not at all supportive. Um, that has to be a part of it. You can have some personal care and concern for your um, for your uh, your friends, but you also have to recognize that um, this has been happening for a long time, and the kinds of efforts like that that are what I think of as not necessarily but closer to the performative as opposed to the authentic type of allyship, those efforts aren't doing anything. And we need to take advantage of this moment. And there are a number of things that makes this particular moment, while this this event that sparked a lot of these protests looks a lot like previous events, there's context, there's situations that have made this one more impactful and that there's momentum here that we have to take advantage of. And I think that somebody who wants to be an ally can't just do the things that are performative. They can't just check in on people's emotions and feelings. You have to start recognizing the nature of structural bias and structural discrimination. You have to recognize that, you know, if you're going to address it, it means sacrifice. It means giving up on things that you might have benefited from with respect to privilege. It means changing how we go about doing things in particular organizations that are long that have long-standing um, sort of elements of bias that discriminate people or discriminate against people from underrepresented groups. And that dismantling is not something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to be a sustained effort. So you're also going to have to get ready for the long haul. And not doing other things like changing your behavior, like protesting, like um, getting involved in local politics and electing officials who have this as an agenda item that's at the top of their concerns, as opposed to thinking about it as one of the elements of other things that they want to do, that people are going to put diversity and inclusion at the forefront of what they're doing and use it to help to recreate a lot of these institutions that centers diversity and inclusion, that centers people of color, that recognizes past um, discrimination and past um, um, atrocities and addresses those things going forward in order to help to remedy and then also create a more level playing field. So yeah, I think there's a lot of elements of allyship that, you know, sharing things on Facebook, that's great. And it actually does have some benefit because sometimes you see something on Facebook that maybe gave you an idea that you wouldn't have had, right? So somebody sharing an idea that you might've seen, and you may not have seen that if your particular friend had sent it compared to another friend. So I think that's an important element of kind of distributing resources for people, but you have to engender the motivation for people to read and explore those resources. You have to engender the motivation for them to, to take a step that's maybe a little different than what they've done before to get outside of their comfort zone to, um, you know, you may not be a protest person, but you know, I, I sort of mentioned this idea of, of looking for Black-owned breweries or Black-owned businesses. There are lots of different kinds of things that you can do to shake it up a little bit, to mix it up. And I think if everybody does at least something small to try to mix things up and does something that's sustainable, that's sort of consistent with the kinds of things that they would typically do, we can get better. We can do those small things. And if everybody does them, they're going to have a bigger impact. We can get better. We can try to figure out ways to get a little bit more uncomfortable, ways of getting out of our lane a little bit more. Um, I was actually really paralyzed at the beginning of this. So I was one of those people that wasn't quite okay. And I think I wasn't okay because um, I think I sort of alluded to this before. The the experimental social psychologist in me 
um, is thinking about this at a theoretical level and how to apply this to try to make change. But I haven't been studying this kind of racism. I haven't been studying structures. I obviously appreciate structures because I'm a social psychologist, but I haven't studied them. I haven't studied the extent to which they can have impacts on people. I don't doubt a lot of the work that's done. I believe in them, but it's not my expertise. So when people were asking me if I was okay, um, there was a there was a particular picture that set me off, and it was the picture um, that juxtaposed um, Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck with Colin Kaepernick kneeling. And it brought up, it was a post by Bernice King, I think, but it basically brought up the idea that if one of these pictures bothers you more than the other one, and if it's the one of Kaepernick kneeling, if you were in outrage about that, there's something wrong. You know, you are somebody who defends organizations and systems more than people, and that's problematic. And seeing that image really just set me off. I was, at that point, I was out. I avoided social media. Um, I will say I'm a little ashamed because, again, as an African-American male, as a person who has experienced discrimination and, and feels pretty well-versed in the ways in which discrimination can impact people's outcomes, I um, mentioned before, I get shocked at the level of bias, the level of discrimination, the level of hate, the level of violence that gets expressed towards Black men and women. And every time I see it, and this time it was different because the juxtaposition of those two images, it just made it seem intentional. It was much more intentional. It was as if Chauvin was trying to make a point. And that suggests a level of racism that's a little more insidious than I think I was willing to even admit. So it took me a little while to get okay and figure out what my voice was going to be, whether I had anything to contribute. And I'm getting there. I'm still working on it. But um, what helped to get me where there was, ironically, another social media post that said, essentially, um, we need a lot of different people doing a lot of different things, and we don't need anybody doing everything. And I think I was putting pressure on myself to try to do it all, to be the person who is the historian, to be able to quote um, um, you know, past uh, civil rights leaders, to be able to cite um, historical references going back to the origins of our country. That's not what I do. That's not my expertise. My expertise is sort of to understand how people understand these things, how what their understanding of group membership, their understanding of context and situation, how it translates into their own behavior. And I think I can do some work to try to educate people about those factors, what's important, what's not important, and then to try to engender a little bit more change to get people to do the kinds of things that are going to be beneficial for this kind of movement. So, um, you know, I'm not there yet. I feel a little better than I did yesterday. The thing I was going to admit is that at the bottom of this, um, this feeling that I had, I, um, I was um, sitting at this point or in this spot um, a few nights ago, and I decided I was going to start watching The West Wing. And for those of you who don't remember The West Wing, it's uh, a show that was, I'm going to just say it was liberal porn. It was um, presenting um, a view of government, of the people who work in government, of their motivations, of their challenges that really just looked out for people um, at the expense of corporations, at the expense of capitalism, at the expense of um, you know conservatism, et cetera. So, but it was providing me with this sort of aspirational ideal that we were never going to get to based on what I had seen in the previous week. So I was downstairs watching the West Wing, sobbing, you know, for what we 
for what that show did for us, for the, what that show then represented, or at least what today represents in terms of how far we are away from something like that. And that was, that was how I was trying to get better. But then over time, when I saw that post about staying in your own lane and not trying to do everything, it started to click. And so, uh, yeah, I, I know this is a very long answer, <laughs> but allyship is difficult and everybody's got to find a way to do something. And it's got to be a little more than just sharing social media posts and checking in on your black friends. You have to start to do things that are going to have political and economic impact on the structures that reinforce themselves based on, you know, histories and histories of oppression of people of color. Yeah, that's uh, man, that that answer, it's it really speaks to this. Well, I, I think this feeling that a lot of us have had of like, this shit is fucked up and you want to do something. But at the same time, you like don't know what you feel kind of impotent to do anything and or anything you can think of to do feels insufficient. Um, and I think for a lot of like liberal white people, they're like, well, we can just ask a black person what we should be doing. Right. Surely they have it figured out and they can give us instructions. And th that's what's sort of like. I, you know, during the break, we were talking about whether to talk about this particular New York Times piece. And like, this isn't intrinsic to the piece necessarily, but it's of a piece with a series of things that I see as like being aimed at white people. That's like a black person says you should do this. And it's like somehow that person is speaking for everybody, right? Like, as if black people are like this monolithic group where it's like, well, this black person said such and such, and therefore I can just go do that. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that you know, we're all struggling with this, right? And it's not like anybody's the authority on what the right thing to do here is. Nobody really knows. And, you know, like, I, I think, man, maybe the best advice is just to be like, don't forget about this as soon as it's out of the headlines and think deeply about what you could be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even that, I mean, you know, the other thing is that any particular approach, like, I don't know, I kind of think about it as, it's a little bit like variability. Like you can have some kind of manipulation and it's going to get a ton of people and you want to use the manipulation that's going to get the most people, but it may not get everybody. And that this is the problem that, you know, a particular strategy or perspective on how to be a good ally, it might get and satisfy the most people, but it's not going to satisfy everybody. So why pick one approach? Why not experiment with a lot of different approaches and have a little bit more of a nuanced um a nuanced approach to applying those approaches so that you can pick the right one for the right situation. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, the other part, I, I often think that, um, you know, forgive me for the, the sort of tongue in cheek here, but you know, white people are screwed from the perspective of like, there are black people who will say, um, you're doing these things without, without checking with us, right? You're trying to do these things. You're not centering us. You're not um, incorporating our voices. And I absolutely agree that those things are important. But then you can also find Black people who will say, this is not our fight. This is your problem. You need to talk to your people. And so there's a there's a challenge there. And I and sympathy is maybe the right word that I would have. And I don't think there are many of my colleagues or friends that would say the same thing. But I have sympathy for people who are well-meaning that find themselves in that dilemma. And I think there's got to be some kind of a middle ground. And it's not going to make everybody happy. But, you know, it may be the thing that's the most effective. So, yeah, you do have to educate yourself. And you can't rely on Black people to be the ones to educate you. Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't some people who are willing to do that. And the extent to which you can incorporate those voices in everything you do. And I think this is the other thing is that we have to figure out a way to make this 
as you were getting at, Yoel, not just a thing that you do now and that goes away. It's got to start to become incorporated into how we do things. It's just got to be a part. It's got to be institutionalized in our practices, just as much as privilege and as, as racism is institutionalized into our practices. We have to be anti-racist in our practices. And that means acknowledging it and building in processes and procedures that take it into explicit account. We can't just sort of assume that everything's going to be okay if we don't pay attention to it. It's always got to be at the top of our mind. And the extent to which we can be um, mindful of centering it in our, all of our practices, and again, this for any particular person, you got to start somewhere, right? But ultimately, that's what we have to do. It's got to be a part of everything that we do, all these different structures that have implications for people's outcomes in our society. Um. Well, I also want to echo what you all said uh, in response to your last answer. Yeah, I mean, just a, such a heartfelt answer, and I really it, it touched me that to, to hear you speak so honestly. Um, and you, you, there's so much in there that I want to unpack, but maybe one, and I'm just going to ask you to opine here because uh, I'm, I'm not sure you would know more than more than us or anybody else. But um, you you mentioned in your answer that um, now feels different, right? So you know, there are there have been many incidents of uh, police brutality over the past, you know, few years that have been highlighted on video. Um, but this one, you know, something something was different about this one. Um, do, do you have any ideas? Can you speculate about what it is? Like, is it, you know, this juxtaposition in your mind, that, that, uh, that Copernic just, juxtaposition, yeah, yeah. or is it... It's... Um... Let me see. I, I, I don't know what the greatest percentage of variance is, but I will say it's a lot of different things. So one, um, it's a, it was a, a chain of events at the same time. Um, so a series, so Ahmaud Aubrey, um, uh, Floyd, Breonna Taylor, you know, in a very short period of time um, that were pretty unambiguous. I mean, I think this is the other thing is that oftentimes when something like this happens, there's so many different alternative explanations that a motivated reasoner can come up with to support their own perspective and their viewpoint. It's it, I'm I'm really struggling to find other interpretations for the things that happened to these three individuals over this past week um, or past couple of weeks. Uh, the other thing is it's so not so much about those particular incidents and how brutal and unambiguous they were. But also, it's 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 COVID, right? It's the pandemic. We are, we have a couple of different things. One, you have a bunch of people who are undergoing a great deal of sacrifice and hearing a lot about how the sacrifice that they're undergoing is disproportionately affecting other people from different racial and ethnic groups, and that those kinds of disparities that they exist that exist already are been have been. Um, exaggerated through this crisis. So that's one element is sort of the, the conversation around those kinds of inequities and who's being affected and hurt by this particular, um, this pandemic response and, and the virus in and of itself, right? In terms of health disparities, et cetera, in terms of the people who need to be working on the front lines to support the rest of us who, you know, may be drawing a salary regardless of whether we can work in our office or work at home and aren't afraid of losing our jobs. So there's that element of it. Um, the other part is, you know, so again, we, we are, we care a little bit more about what other people might be going through and the fact that they might've already been going through this because we now know what it feels like to some extent. We've been walking in other people's shoes in a, in a small way. The other part is 
you know, we're all inside. <laughs> we spend so much time. If we're doing anything, we're looking at screens and these screens are giving us information about what's happening in the world. And so there's so much more attention and there's no distractions, right? There's no ball games to watch. There's no, or to go to, there's no, um, you know, movies to, you know, at least to go out to dinners and restaurants, bars, drinks, parties, dancing, all the kinds of things that would normally distract us aren't there to distract us anymore. We have other minor distractions, but many of them really just have to do with, you know, looking at social media, connecting with people in Zoom rooms, things like that. And like, we're just less distracted. So now there's a signal with a lot less noise and we're picking up on that signal um, quite a bit. So I think another element to this is the, the kinds of responses that we see in organizations that you see everybody coming out with a message to stand up against this. Um, that we stand and we fight against racism, a lot of that, and this is the cynic in me, um, people do that in general. Like, so when companies are worried about their image, they make a statement like that because they want to protect their image. They want to protect their bottom line. But this crisis has created so much more economic stress on those organizations already. So can you imagine an organization that's already worried about, you know, their sustainability in the future because of this, but then they're going to lose a bunch of followers or I'm sorry, they're going to lose a bunch of um, potential patrons because someone decides that, you know, somebody donated money to the wrong person or somebody didn't have the right response to this, to these incidents and, you know, take the right stance. And that puts even more pressure on them. And as my cynical side is like all these organizations are just their bottom. This is a capitalist system. They're all bottom line oriented. If they do anything that has to do with social justice, it's because they think it's better for the bottom line. And that's not a uniform statement. It's just a tendency. I think that's sort of the nature of things in a capitalist system. There might be some really good actors out there, but yeah, because of that pressure, they gotta, they've got to step up and they're going to have to step up in ways. If we're smart, if we are able to hold them accountable, not just say that this statement is enough, that they start to do things and we get more informed about the kinds of things that are really going to lead to systemic and long-term change, then the longer this crisis goes on, the more likely they are going to do those kinds of things. But as soon as they get healthy economically and they stop worrying about losing money, then this all goes away. So I feel like it's a moment, right? It's it's a it's a crucible. It's like a perfect storm of an opportunity to make some headway on an issue that's been bothering us, that's been troubling us for years and years and years. And I don't know history very, very well, but it feels like it's really unique, right? There aren't any other points in history that had this same same confluence of factors that that might help to propel a particular issue like the way it's it seems to be taking off now so it feels different but you know there's the pessimist in me that says that in a lot of ways we've been through different things like this before we've even been through a civil war for god's sake and things did change to some extent but didn't go away and so i'm still a little pessimistic about the future but if if in in recent memory if there's going to be a moment this is the moment it's so funny that you bring up these uh, emails from companies because I feel like a couple months ago, every day I was getting an email from some company I ordered something from <laughs> once that was like, we're supporting you via, you know, through COVID. And yeah. we really, we really care about how you're doing in these challenging times. And now those same fuckers are emailing me again, being like, we're totally against racism, yeah. you know, a controversial position. But, but I take your point that like, you know, this is maybe an opportunity to say like, well, okay, you've committed to these principles now act in accordance with them. Right. Yep, we like, got to see more. And yeah, yeah. And again, we have to get smarter. People have to get smarter about what more is. And again, without the distractions, 
there are people who, I mean, you know, the other part I kind of mentioned, I, I, there's a bit of a shame in me in that I did not attend any protest um, that happened in Boston. And I, there's a part of me that just, I'm not a protester. Um, I just act in different ways, but I would, I think it's important for me to think about myself as being flexible and moving in directions where I can do things that are more outside of my comfort zone. And I want to encourage other people to think that way too. And it doesn't have to be big steps. It can be small steps that move you in the right direction. So finding, you know, socially responsible sort of decisions in terms of your, um, the beer that you buy, the wine that you drink, the coffee that you drink, the clothes that you buy, things like that. And just giving some of these organizations, these companies a try that, you know, again, are working in a marketplace where the deck is stacked against them. Like that's all you can really ask. You know, I may not, I may not really love the beer from these other co companies, but at least I'm giving it a shot. I'm trying it. And if a lot more people try it, they're going to find something that they maybe wouldn't have come across before. So it's like, I'm trying to get myself to do some things that push me a little bit further from my comfort zone. And I think because people now have, you know, do all the time that we spend, like, you know, baking sourdough bread, like you can spend a little bit of that time going to a protest. You know, you can spend a little bit of that time exploring different kinds of businesses or restaurants in your area that service that, that focus on African-Americans. My wife is, um, my wife's um, actually um, white. She's um, European American. She's from Minnesota and was really, you know, apart from her relationship with me and our kids, um, you know, the impact in terms of racial issues. She was also similarly really affected by George Floyd because it happened in um, Minneapolis. And so her, she had a fantastic idea, like stay in your lane. She cares a lot about food. She cares a lot about cooking. She cares about, um, you know, food insecurity. She cares about access to, to fresh foods and that there are some challenges in the inner city in inner cities and a lot of places for African-Americans in those places. So she, um, and I can get you the names, I don't remember the names right now, but she found a couple of different organizations that focus on African-American communities in Boston and in Minneapolis to try to get them more access to fresh food, to try to address some issues that they, that people might experience with food insecurity. And we're gonna, we're gonna make some donations to those organizations. Um, one of them is sort of local home and the other one is local here. And I'm from Detroit and so I'm gonna look and try to find an organization organization that does something similar in Detroit. But that's something that we can do that's, you know, near and dear to our hearts, um, that can do something at a local level to try to affect the outcomes that people may have. And if a lot of us do this, if we all take these kinds of strategies, we're going to have a bigger impact than any one person would alone. So knowing that you're a part of, a, of something bigger, something else that's happening, often does make you feel a little better about a small step. And small steps lead to big steps. That's a great idea. So if you get us those links, we'll put them in the show notes. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are looking for something that they can do. So I think that'll be really welcome. So uh, I'm mindful of, of taking too much of your time. Um, and we still have so many questions, but maybe we can we can limit it to like one or two more and, and then we'll uh, we'll call it an evening. Um, so you, while you already kind of uh, foreshadowed uh, this this question, and this is a question of social psychology in the past two decades emphasis on uh, implicit bias and implicit prejudice, um, which seems, um, well, it does seem misguided given current events where it doesn't look like anything's implicit or unconscious or modern. It looks like old-fashioned prejudice. And on, on social media, there are many examples of people being kind of really upset about this. So I'll give you kind of a taste of some of the, the, the tweets that 
that you well kindly uh, put on our show notes here. Um, uh, so one here is, uh, honestly, I'll never forgive social psychology for pushing implicit bias mm. training I read that as one. a method for reducing racism. Um, uh, there's another one here. Uh, I've long thought implicit prejudice functions best as an approach to liberals' racism. The notion that implicit prejudice is the prejudice of the era strikes me as a consequence of professors living in liberal bubbles. Um, so I wonder what, you know, uh, uh, what, what your thought is of, you know, uh, again, the, the, the main kind of form of prejudice that we've been studying for the past two decades, not by everybody, but by majority, I would say, has been implicit prejudice. Um, yeah. What, what do you make of these critiques? Um, that's great. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of um, sympathy for those sentiments. Um, and I think implicit bias in and of itself is, you know, the idea of the overgeneralization of the extent to which it can explain what we're experiencing, what we see in our society. Um, I think that early claims wouldn't necessarily um, be consistent with how it's been applied in a lot of different contexts and the expectations that have been placed upon it. But I still think that implicit bias is important and that it's, it is probably something that's more akin to um, describing people who are otherwise well-meaning, and again, think of themselves as being well-meaning, that don't um, harbor explicit sorts of um, expectations, or at least they won't admit explicit expectations towards groups, that it still has a place in terms of helping to understand what's going on. Um, and this, uh, with apologies to my colleagues and peers, there may be somebody who's explored this, but I don't know. But um, I should, probably shouldn't even admit that because it's probably something that's right there in the front of my face. But, you know, the idea that implicit bias, you know, we I think we have evidence that suggests that that um, the kinds of cognitive processes where people, um, let's say, will use shortcuts to help them make decisions, right, using heuristics and what have you. Um, the kinds of implicit associations that we may have about particular groups could be sort of the content, right? It could provide some of the content of some of the heuristics that we're applying in different contexts and different situations. So the shortcuts that we take might be more likely to be shortcuts that are highly represented stereotypes or prejudices that we have in terms of our associations with particular groups. Um, those things can push us in slight directions, you know, to preferring a particular political candidate, preferring a particular person to hire, preferring a particular person to, to give a loan to. It doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't characterize all the bias that we see in the world, but it's characterizing some of it. Um, Attributional processes are also huge, right? The idea that people tend not to pay attention to the context in terms of explaining another person's outcomes and another person's behavior. Um, if we have these kinds of associations with particular groups that give us dispositional explanations for why they do the things they do, why they have the particular outcomes they have, we're going to prefer those dispositional um, explanations over the context, over the situation. And this is the argument we're having right now, right? People don't want to believe in structural discrimination. They think that essentially we live in a meritocracy and that meritocracy means that the work that you put into it based on your own qualities and characteristics predicts the outcomes that you get from it. And it ignores the fact that different people in this society live in different contexts. And those contexts help to drive the characteristics that they develop over time and their opportunities to display and to take advantage of whatever opportunities there are in our society to, you know, again, other kinds of things, you know, get healthcare, 
um, get healthy food, buy houses, get loans, get jobs, et cetera. So when we ignore the situation, we are ignoring the context, we're ignoring the structure. And that's exactly the challenge that we're dealing with right now. We're trying to get people to recognize that situations matter. Situations make a big difference. And those situations can be the room that you're in and the people that are around you, or it could be the organization that you're working in, or it could be the political system that's driving, you know, who gets to have some particular power and make decisions about policy, et cetera. So we're, we're basically doing social psychology work. Um, at least we I frame my stuff as getting people to recognize that situations matter and that different people of different racial and ethnic groups have different situations. And if I can get people to sort of buy into that, the liberal people, knowing that some of the, the beliefs they might have implicitly about these groups because of the exposure, because of, you know, the kind of the, the um, product of long-term discrimination leads to outcomes that are different, but people explain those outcomes in very different ways. And if I can get people to think a little bit differently about why those outcomes are there and make decisions that are less based on disposition and more based on situations, I'm also going to empower them to think about how to change things. And those mean, that means changing situations, changing structures, not necessarily focusing on people and their potential um, or perceived shortcomings. So, um, you know, one of the other things, Sam Summers and I, we actually, um, we do, we do implicit bias training. Um, it's a workshop that sort of hijacks the concept of implicit bias because frankly, that's what everybody wants to hear about. And we talk to them about implicit bias. We even do a bit of a demonstration to kind of talk about what implicit bias is, but we're not, we're not claiming to ever change people, to train people to counteract or to get rid of their biases. What we're trying to train people to do is to recognize as their biases influence some of the decisions that they make in their organization and that we can hack the system. We can take advantage of the fact that we have these biases, not take advantage, but we can recognize that we have these biases and we can change, focus on changing structures, focus on changing procedures, focus on changing, you know, the, the criteria by which we judge individuals and decide whether or not they're, they're appropriate for certain kinds of jobs or positions and understanding that the biases are leading us to make certain kinds of direct, um, decisions that disadvantage people from particular groups. If we have the mindset to create a little more equity, then we can start to focus on those processes to change not the expression of the bias, but change the impact of the bias on people who belong to those groups. So I think implicit bias is still a really important concept, right? It's just not changing implicit bias is going to change our outcomes. It's that understanding that bias, implicit bias can take place, can lead us to focus on the structural characteristics and um, uh, qualities of, of, um, of different sorts of institutions and situations so that we can mitigate the, the impact of that bias. So yeah, I think if people are trying to change implicit bias, yeah, that's a problem. That's a big focus. But if you can use implicit bias to motivate people to recognize that they have to change their structures, change their procedures, change their processes, then yeah, implicit bias can play a really important role in this um, in this conversation. Yeah, that's a uh, that actually ties in really nicely to the last thing that we wanted to mention, which is this. Some people have made this critique of of the social psychological study of. Um, uh, prejudice and discrimination and unequal outcomes saying, look, you guys are so focused on the individuals and that's just the wrong place to be looking. You should be looking at the larger systemic structures. So for example, a caricature of the social psychological 
position might be some police or all police have implicit bias and we should train them. And a structurist person would say, no, the problem is that in many cities, the contracts that police unions negotiate make it nearly impossible to fire police officers who have a record of uh, excessive force complaints, right? And so that's like a, a very different focus. But it feels like what you're saying is like there is a hybrid of those two, right? Where you can say like, well, people are fallible and they have these problems. And so we have to design the systems in order or keeping that in mind, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, it's, it's consistent with this idea that people are, and again, some people may argue, but essentially people are human information processors that have pretty predictable kinds of biases that um, in terms of the judgments that they make, how they're going to make those judgments and what those outcomes are likely to be under certain kinds of situations, under certain circumstances. And again, going back to the development of our theoretical understanding of how people work, how they tick, how individuals make judgments, we can use that to say, look, individual changing an individual's pattern of judgment, it can be challenging and difficult, but it's not the only approach. It doesn't mean we can't try that, but we can also think about the context because people are working in certain contexts. And if we can adjust, you know, somebody who's under time pressure to make a decision is going to make a faster decision that's more heuristic based. Can we do something to alleviate the time pressure? Somebody who is looking for um, cues, surface cues, like um, evaluating a resume based on the school that someone went to or looking at their grade point average. If we know that these are shortcuts that people use to make judgments about merit for particular organizations for, you know, for jobs and organizations, maybe we can get them to focus on different criteria, other things that may be more challenging to, to figure out about candidates, but more diagnostic in terms of what you might need for a particular job. So really, yeah, you're right. It's that we, we can work together like social psychologists do try to understand human information processing. But again, we often look at many contexts and sociologists look at bigger contexts and political scientists look at bigger contexts, but it's all context. So I think we all can have something to say and contribute to each other in order to help to affect change. Because again, some sociologists might make a, a decision about sort of a structural um, change that needs to take place, but we also have to understand how people are going to interpret that and whether or not that's going to be something that's sustainable or whether it's going to engender backlash. And if we don't understand how people tick and how they're going to perceive the kinds of interventions that we suggest, then some of those interventions are going to backfire. I think if we know a little bit more about mechanism, then we're going to know a little bit more about the potential effectiveness of different things that we would do. Yeah. Mickey, um, do we have anything else that we need to get to? Because I, I realize we've already uh, we've kept you longer than we promised. I'm sorry. We yeah. were like, uh, 15 more minutes. No problem. And now it's I, can I told it's you nearly it's, it's honestly no, this is I would be perfectly honest. This is uh, I told you I'm still trying to figure things out. And making me talk about this is really helpful because me thinking about it in my head was not working. So I really have appreciated you know, I am one of the people, I did get a lot of texts from from my white friends checking in on me. Um, not as much, some people asking me for advice, which I actually don't mind because I'm, I'm, I'm an instructor, like this is what I do, but um, checking in on me. And I wasn't really as okay as I wanted to be, but I realized that talking to people about it helped me wrap my mind around it, wrap, again, wrap my thoughts around some of these issues. And again, it's a process. I'm not quite there yet. I might change in terms of some of the things that I've thought of doing, but this conversation is part of that. It's been really useful and helpful. So I hope, uh, yeah, I hope other people find it useful as well. I'm sure they will. And, and, and if, if this is any help for you, that's great. I'm sure it'll be an immense help, uh, 
for our curious uh, listeners. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I want to thank you, uh, Keith, for for taking uh, your time uh, to talk with us today. Um, too much of your time, um, and uh, well, I'm sure we'd like to would love to have you back again uh, someday soon. Yeah, that would be nice. And I'm gonna I'm, you you could I appreciate that. I'm gonna add one more thing. You can cut this out if you want to, but you guys, I it I have to admit I haven't listened for a little while because things got really busy. But you guys need to try to you can think about bringing in more people of color. And again, this is fine because this is my research topic and this is something I want to talk about. But you know, people of color that talk about some of the other issues, particularly. You know, there's and you guys have pointed this out a number of times, like, you know, the idea that the, you know, the replicability crisis and the, you know, um, you know, some of the issues around open science, those conversations have there have been fewer sort of underrepresented minority and women voices in those conversations. And if you guys could be a part of bringing more of those voices in, um, maybe reluctant people, but still, you know, making the effort, I think, is is going to it, it would help. A little bit in the landscape in terms of getting people to be a little bit more part of this and you know broaden the the diversity of the kinds of voices and the perspectives that people have on an issue that's going to affect all of us as scientists so i i absolutely love what you guys do so don't don't take that as as harsh harsh criticism but you know this was a moment that i'd be remiss not to sort of mention that kind of effort that that you can take having the platform that you have and you know you can do this in your professional and personal lives and I, again i'm making the recommendation for everybody but you guys do a fantastic job i really really love this podcast oh well that's very nice of you and i i think that uh that comment is right on so like we do like explicitly think about gender right um but we don't explicitly think about race we've never had a conversation about like have we had like exclusively white people i i, I mean i don't know we might have right so um i think that's a great point and and something on the topic of, you know, things that in the future you can think about and work on and do better on, um, something that I think we ought to consider. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I echo that. So thank you for uh, putting our feet to the fire.